You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Great to be with you here on this Tuesday. I'm Brooke Baldwin. We have to begin with this ghost story. And a character named Slenderman allegedly inspired two young girls, I'm talking middle school, to lead their young friend into the woods and stab her 19 times. New details now emerging about the possible motive behind the stabbing. According to court documents, Morgan Geyser and Anissa Wire, charged as adults with attempted first-degree intentional homicide, believe they would become agents for a fictional Internet character named Slenderman by killing their friend. According to court documents, the two plotted to kill their friend to please Slenderman, a demon-like fictional character on the horror site Creepypasta. It is most commonly known as Slenderman. 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 It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and in this episode, Dr. Karen Stolzel and I will be discussing Slenderman and Tulpas. Slenderman is an internet creation made for a contest on the Something Awful website. Its creator was Victor Surge, whose real name is Eric Knudsen. I believe that's pronounced correctly. The character is tall, thin, faceless, wears a suit, and is often shown in the background of otherwise innocent photos, sometimes showing tentacles creeping from behind his back. His fictional story is that he compels children to kill. On May 31, 2014, two young girls in Wisconsin attacked a third girl with a knife and alleged that their motivation was to become proxies of the Slender Man and to go live in his mansion in the woods. Why would they believe that a fictional creature was real? Since the creation of Slenderman, the character's gone viral and spun off numerous works of art, drawings, videos, poems, and fictional prose. And some people believe that he is real, either existing already from time immemorial, or that he exists now, brought to life by the combined belief of millions of humans in the form of a living creature known as a tulpa. 
I'd been looking for a way to discuss Slenderman on Monster Talk that consisted of something more substantial than me calmly saying that Slenderman's a work of fiction and that, like all fiction, it can inspire positive or negative responses in audiences, but that culpability for such actions should not be slapped on the original creators. After all, once an idea gets out into the wild, it will inevitably change as it's interpreted by the unique minds of each person who experiences it. For monster enthusiasts, Slenderman's something of a conundrum because there are folks who dismiss him as merely an internet creation. I've met listeners to this show who've asked me, why would I ever cover him? He's just creepypasta. I had to go look up the term creepypasta after that conversation. The term creepypasta is a bastardized form of copypasta, which is itself a bastardized form of cut and paste. It refers to a kind of internet horror story. The website creepypasta.com collects these horror stories, many of which riff on a particular theme such as a strange TV show or mysterious characters of a shared fictional universe. In some ways, it's more like a democratized version of H.P. Lovecraft's writing circle, wherein the authors freely exchange monstrous ideas using common motifs. It's horror, and the history of modern horror has been rife with complaints that it inspires people to do bad things. I've never seen compelling evidence that this is true, even when murderers show an enthusiasm for a particular fictional character. There could be many reasons why horror fiction gets a bad reputation. One is that people want easy explanations for why some people do terrible acts of violence. Labeling makes it easy to neatly store and explain stories like the video game maniac who kills in real life or the devil worshiper who sacrifices people. Maybe there are such people. But those labels can also arise from investigators seeing a copy of Dungeons and Dragons or heavy metal albums in the home of a suspect and not knowing the difference between occult pop culture and sincere occult religious belief. I've noticed that while having non-Judeo-Christian literature in one's house can get you a devil worshiper label slapped on you, that the media rarely comes out alleging people to be Christ-worshipping murderers if the perpetrators happen to have a New Testament. My point is that such labels are representative of a cultural in-group, out-group dynamic more than an explanatory way of looking at how these behaviors actually happen. Okay, sorry, that was a bit of a rant. Like millions of people worldwide, I love fiction, and I get annoyed when people's macabre taste in imaginary is blamed for the actions of a few people in real life. Correlation and causation issues, confirmation bias issues, I just don't think it's fair to blame the creative impulses of one set of people and the behavioral failings of another. But let's move on. In this episode, we interview Professors Joe Laycock and doctoral student Natasha Michaels, who help us find out more about Slenderman, the history of tulpas, and the reality of their supposedly ancient Far Eastern heritage. I think you'll be surprised at some of their findings. Monster Talk. All right, here we go. So uh, welcome to Monster Talk. Today we have Joe Laycock and Natasha Michaels. Joe, I know you are an author and a, a researcher as well as a professor or teacher of religious studies. And Natasha, the latest info I have on you is you're a doctoral student focused on Tibetan studies. But maybe you could flesh out your bios a little bit. So I'm an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. And I study American religious history and new religious movements or, or what other people would call uh, cults. And I'm a doctoral student at the University of Virginia, uh, focusing in Sino-Tibetan Buddhism, so the uh, Buddhist practices found between the Tibetan world and the Chinese world. And my research usually focuses on Tibetan oral epics and 
uh, sort of, I guess, spiritual possession traditions. Joe, you've written a book on vampire culture as well, haven't you, about real vampire culture? And we think that might be of interest to our, our listeners too. Can you tell us about that a bit? Yeah. Uh, before I went back to graduate school, I was a high school history teacher in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And Atlanta, uh, like several cities around the country, is uh, home to a community of, of real vampires. And these are people who feel that they have to feed on either the, the sort of psychic energy or life force uh, of other people or the actual uh, blood of other people to be healthy. And in, in my field, religious studies, there was an awareness that this community existed uh, and they had just assumed uh, this must be some kind of religious belief that these people were were acting on. But no one had actually gone and, and spoken to a vampire. So uh, <laughs> I went and sort of reached out to them and was able to, to kind of um, earn their trust enough that I could go and attend meetings and so forth. And it turned out, you know, a lot of them were Baptists and Jews and mm. and in that in the Bible Belt, a lot of them were going to church every Sunday and people had no idea uh, about this lifestyle. So what I learned was that the, the real vampire community is much more complicated than anyone had previously given them credit for. It doesn't appear to be that there's anything mentally wrong with them in terms of delusion, uh, but this also doesn't seem to be a, a, a religion, uh, at least most of the time. So it's it's much more complicated than that. And what about an iron deficiency? I've heard of that as being one possible theory to explain well, the, the cravings. Yeah, the, the group I was studying uh, is really taking this idea very seriously. When I was in Atlanta, the Atlanta Vampire Alliance was uh, conducting a survey of other self-identified vampires and trying to ask them if anyone had been diagnosed for things like iron deficiency, mm -hmm. uh, fibromyalgia, tuberculosis, you know, all these <laughs> different sorts of theories, uh, so that the data is at least there. And, and they right. hope that this will encourage other people to collect uh, more data uh, using more professional methodology in, in the future. Might be the subject for another show, too. Yeah, I think point. so, maybe. <laughs> Did you also deal with psychic vampires in that research, or just uh, uh, sanguinarians? Yeah, exactly. Psychic and sanguinarians are the, are the terms that are used. Uh, and, you know, with the Internet, these communities could sort of discover each other for the first time, and there was initially a fight about who's a real vampire, the psychic, or the sanguinarians. Uh, and, and now the community is, is really comprised of, of people with different sort of feeding typologies, the, the psychic vampires, the sanguinarian vampires, and so-called hybrids that, that can sort of feel they can feed uh, using either uh, method, and they, they more or less get along. Wow. <laughs> Although there was some concern that my research might sort of dredge up old, old feuds over who was a real vampire and, and who was an imitator. Yeah, so it's uh, the people who really embrace the culture and those who are just masquerading, is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <poses>. my God. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, because this is not really my field, even though I come from a, a, a fairly religious background, I don't actually know much about religious studies. Does modern religious study include things like memetics and folklore and mythology? I think it can. Uh, it really depends on, on where you want to situate yourself in the field. Um, my, my sense of the field is that there are folklorists. There also is an entire separate field of folkloric studies that says that we're not part of religious studies. Um, I myself tend to focus on narratives and myths, and so I see myself as both a folklorist and a religious studies scholar. An another misconception about the field is that we are uh, theologians, <laughs> which, which we're not. Um, so with things like psychic vampires or, or tulpas, we're not interested in you know whether these things are 
real or can be proven empirically. We're interested in sort of the history of the idea. Uh, so this is a common misconception in, in the public. We're, we're not interested in proving religious truth claims. We're interested in what their significance is culturally and historically and sociologically. In a, in a parallel analogy, would it be like if you studied game mechanics and the, the, the construction of narrative purpose in role-playing games, but you didn't subscribe to a particular role-playing game in particular. I mean, I'm not trying to diminish the role of religion, but I mean, so you don't necessarily take on the belief aspect, but you're looking at the sociocultural and historical context. Yeah. I mean, you make this allusion to game mechanics, and I think this is something that we we spend a lot of time and a lot of ink discussing, (laughs) is are there there sort of common mechanics, if you will, that, that go throughout different religious traditions, or are we simply... Uh, making a comparison that isn't really there. If we're comparing, you know, folklore to uh, the Council of Trent or something <laughs> like that, right? Is is, yeah. is is there something really there, or is this does this similarity only exist kind of in our minds? Is it Deus twenty? <laughs> <laughs> That's <Exactly>. terrible. Okay. <laughs> well, Joe, you've recently written about Slender Man, and this was in response to the May 31st stabbing of the Wisconsin child by two other children. This was a crime that was allegedly inspired in, in some way by Slender Man. So who or what is Slender Man, and how has this character evolved? Well, I had never heard of Slender Man until <laughs> my last birthday, and Natasha bought me uh, a cryptozoology poster and I recognized Bigfoot and Nessie and the Chupacabra. And then there was this character in a suit with no face. And I said, who is that? <laughs> uh, and so we, we Googled it and it turned out this is Slender Man. And I had never heard of Slender Man because Slender Man was created in 2009. Or so the, some believe. <laughs> or, or so some believe. Yeah, so, so I believe. It was created for, uh, for something awful, mm-hmm. that website. And, and won sort of a contest to see who could make uh, the creepiest uh, image. Uh, and the the person who won uh, made this image of a little girl holding the hand of this sort of stretched out figure in a suit with no face. And they put a sort of um, note to the photo kind of inspired by Lovecraft or Bram Stoker or something that said, uh, I didn't want to go with him. I didn't want to kill them. Uh, but his long arms terrified me and comforted me at the same time or something like this. Uh, and so the, the image, which was created just for fun, uh, was sort of begging for a story. And so on the website uh, Creepypasta, <laughs> uh, people began writing fiction about uh, Slender Man, and it was always the same sort of style of, you know, this could be a true account about Slender Man or it could be uh, I'm, I'm just making this up. And that's sort of the fun of the story is that kind of um, splinter of uncertainty about whether it's, it's true or not. Uh, and then you got viral videos on YouTube and you got games and so forth. And this whole mythology sort of forms. Um, the original creator has actually copyrighted Slender Man, which is why there hasn't been a Slender Man movie on the sci-fi channel or something like this. Uh, but he says, I don't feel like the creature's uh, creator. I feel like it's manager because these yeah. ideas are out there and I can't really control them uh, anymore. On uh, May 31st, 2014, these two girls in uh, Waukesha, uh, Wisconsin, uh, actually stabbed their friends uh, 19 times. Uh, and when asked why they did this, they said, well, we wanted to prove that Slender Man was real. And they had this sort of mythology they had formed where Slender Man uh, had a mansion in the woods in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and would appear and take them uh, to go live with him in this mansion. And, and some, one of the girls had even packed 
photos of her family and power bars and things she was going to need uh, for wow. her new life in, uh, in, in uh, Waukesha. Fortunately, the victim survived um, miraculously. But this was a sort of story that grabbed a lot of headlines because the such a terrible crime and because the two girls uh, were so young. They were, they were 12. So that started a lot of discussion about Slender Man. And then I started to get comments uh, when, I, when I wrote about this case saying, well, Slender Man wasn't made up in 2009. Slender Man is real. Mm-hmm. And people would argue either that uh, Slender Man has existed for thousands of years and shows up in cave paintings. Uh, and, and I would argue <laughs> there's only so many ways to represent a, a human being. And if you get the arms and legs too long, that doesn't mean that it's, it's Slender Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other argument, though, was that Slender Man is a tulpa. And when they say Slender Man is a tulpa, what they mean is that the collective imagination and, and mental energy of thousands of people online writing these stories has actually created a sort of paranormal phenomenon where the creature has a literal existence. And so this brought this idea of, of the tulpa, which has been kind of floating around in, in paranormal lore uh, since the 70s, uh, out to the front. Uh, this is allegedly a, a Tibetan idea, and so I've been working with Natasha and, and trying to get to the bottom of this and whether or not the tulpa uh, really has anything to do with Tibetan philosophy or not. And this wasn't the first time that we had come across tulpa. Um, Joe and I are fans of the show Supernatural, and one of the earlier seasons before it sort of jumped the shark, uh, they were hunting a creature, and it ended up being a tulpa. And it was kind of funny to me as a Tibetanist because – you know, they lead up and they say, oh, someone drew this Tibetan symbol in the house, which called the tulpa forth, and it grew strong on the energy of all this belief. Um, and the Tibetan symbol that they were drawing is actually just uh, a nakikuni. It's just like a simple little, a single syllable that acts as a topicalizer and sort of a colon. Um, and I remember at that time, you know, that's funny. They They just sort of took a colon and put that up there and said oh, look at this great Tibetan symbol. And so I was quite surprised when uh, a couple months ago, Joe said, you know, those tulpas, they're back. It's like people getting tattoos of some Japanese character and they have no idea what it is. It turns out to be something rude. Yeah. Oh, of course. Um, I used to study Chinese and I kind of think that my Chinese skills really are only good for reading people's tattoos on the sub. <laughs> <laughs> How does one go about determining whether or not a tulpa really is a, a traditional... Uh, Tibetan Buddhist idea or not? Well, we began by going to look at what uh, tulpa actually means. I guess maybe the first part is actually looking at how they were spelling it. So, so in the West, um, Western ideas of the, the tulpa really begin with a book called Magic and Mystery in Tibet by Alexander David Neal that was published in 1929. Uh, and Alexander David Neal was, was French. She was a woman and she was sort of an adventurer uh, and she traveled uh, throughout Tibet and she wrote a book uh, about her experiences there. Uh, and she talked about how there is an idea in Tibet um, that if enough people believe in something or if they have uh, unusual mental powers, they can kind of create something out of thin air that will have an independent existence and even a sort of a, a sentience or intelligence. And in her book, she says that she tried to do this in Tibet. And she created, of all the things that she could have created out of thin air, she chose to create a fat, jolly monk. Not a, not a Tibetan monk, mind you, like a Friar Tuck sort of character like you might see in, in medieval Europe. And she says she concentrated for days until she could see this monk 
and, and other people could see it as well. So it had a sort of supernatural existence. But then she became suspicious. So it was almost like a Frankenstein's monster or artificial intelligence. It became sort of more shifty and more cunning. And she eventually had to put it down, right? She doesn't say how she uh, put down uh, her tulpa. And then the next time the tulpa comes up in, in the West is in the Mothman Prophecies in 1975, uh, and, of course, John Keel had traveled uh, to the Himalayas uh, for his first book, Jadu. He was very fascinated with um, this idea of the mystical Orient. So in some of his paranormal investigations, John Keel kept encountering this problem where people would describe seeing a ghost or an alien or something. And then he would notice that a picture looking a lot like what they saw had appeared in a comic book or something months earlier. And his interpretation of this problem was not that people are, you know, um, confabulation, that they're, they're confusing what they saw in a comic book with reality, but that they're seeing a tulpa, right? They're seeing – people reading a comic book gives a physical um, reality to a sort of paranormal uh, phenomenon. And then from uh, John Keel, it got picked up by Brad Steiger – uh, and then the idea sort of spread throughout the throughout the kind of paranormal UFO community until it started appearing on shows like The X-Files uh, and, and Supernatural. Um, but if you go back to the original material, which is Magic and Mystery in Tibet, this word that she's translating as, as tulpa, uh, a more accurate pronunciation would be tulpa? Tulpa. 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 <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a tonal language, and I can't mm-hmm. really hear it correctly. Tonal and aspirate. Yeah. Those uh, ones are really tougher. Uh, I'm a linguist, and yeah, tonal languages are very different for um, English speakers. So, so maybe now I can let Natasha take over and talk about what this word actually means in a Tibetan context yeah. and how it relates to Buddhist philosophy. Um, so Joe sent me the the Wiley translation of spelling. Tibetan is written with an alphabet, but it's not an English alphabet uh, or a Roman alphabet. So he, he sent me the sort of Romanization of the Tibetan, and I started you know searching through the um, you know, tens and twenties of dictionaries that I have all around my apartment. And tulpa is the nominalized form of the verb tulwa, which means to emanate or to manifest or to display. Um, and it has, uh, Tibetan's a part, a particle language. Um, let me know if I'm getting too, uh, linguistically specific here. No, no, uh, that's what this show's all about. I mean, not just specifically <laughs> linguistics, but be yeah. as deep as you want to be because um, you know, it's it's free, and if people don't like it, they can fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> no, they'll love it. They'll love it. They, they, we go deep here. Wonderful. So Tibetan is, um, I call it a, a particle language in the sense that it takes a lot of pieces of words to make new words. Um, and so tulpa in itself actually also becomes particularized with a lot of other other languages. So one example is zultul, which means like that is like an illusion or a, an apparition or like kind of a magician's trick. And so the tool is the same sort of manifest or make an illusion of. And this tool actually gets used in uh, tulku, which is what the Dalai Lama or their Kamata is. It's a reincarnation lineage. And the tool means to manifest and the ku means body. And so it's like the manifestation body. Um, and this is a very particular Tibetan word um, tulku is meaning this manifestation body of a Buddha. And this gets all tied into Tibetan Buddhist philosophy that there are three different bodies to every Buddha, and that there is a more amorphous body of pure truth. Then there's, uh, that's called the Dharmakaya, and there's the Sambhogakaya, which is 
like the body which exists in different pure lands, but the body that we see as suffering beings is called the Nirmanakaya, which is like the form body. And that's what a tulku is. And so I did a bunch of research in my dictionaries and I started looking through the uh, Tibetan Buddhist canon and I kept finding that tulpa just meant tulku and that it was just another way of saying uh, tulku. And the times when tulpa would mean something outside of this Buddhist context, it usually meant an illusion in the way that the world is illusory and, or a magician's trick, but not something that had form, that had uh, volition and could act on its own. So it's really a word that has been borrowed and uh, with a, a different meaning given to it in English. Entirely. And I think it's very important that David Neal uh, really removed it from the Buddhist context to match an almost uh, sorcery-like uh, meaning. Natasha, can you explain uh, <laughs> what the Tibetan understanding of the Dalai Lama is? I mean, Americans <laughs> know him from like the Apple commercials. And Richard Gere. And he's nice to everyone. Yeah. Um, but, but can you explain how the Dalai Lama is regarded as himself an emanation? Yes. So the Dalai Lama... Um, is both a chulku and a chulpa. And this means that he is a chulku, and, and those are both are very tightly bound together. And it means that he's a chulpa because he is um, the Buddhist bodhisattva of Lokiteshara's emanation into the world. And so he's the nirmanakaya, the sort of form body of this cosmic Buddha who's here to help stop suffering. But he's a chulku because he's also the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama before him. And so in some ways it's very similar to, I think we were saying before with Christianity that Jesus is both man and God. In this way, the Dalai Lama is both man. He's the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama and a divine figure in that he's a Buddha. Um, I guess the difference is Buddhists don't really see that as a mystery. They just sort of see that as a fact. But he, so he's also friends with Richard Gere, who, who starred in the Mothman Prophecies, which was based on the book by John Keel, who oh. used the tulpas. It's all connected, it's, man. Yeah, it's, it's coming all together. Connect- <laughs> Conspiracy theory. Or Six Degrees oh. of John Keel. I don't know. <laughs> the idea is there is this cosmic Buddha of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, who can send out this emanation of himself that we experience as the Dalai Lama. Yeah. Right. So so in that sense, the Dalai Lama is an (laughs) emanation from somewhere else. This afternoon, we met with a Tibetan scholar to make sure that we weren't uh, missing anything. And so when we we said, well, this we had to explain Slender Man to this uh, Tibetan scholar. This ethnically (laughs) scholar. (laughs) Took a long time. How is that? (laughs) Um, But but what what it came down to it is, you know, he said, you know, the, these emanations are to give people wisdom and compassion, not to make little girls kill each other in, in the <laughs> woods, right? Mm-hmm. So he was very offended by this notion that, uh, that uh, you know, Slender Man had something to do with yes. this idea of a, of a tulpa. Um, and the example that I've been sort of playing with, or the metaphor to understand what Alexander David Neal did with the verb tulpa and the nominalization tulpa is sort of the way that we in our in English have the verb to consummate. And if you say they consummated their marriage, like you mean they had sex, but to say they consummated has much, it comes with a, a whole cartload of theological baggage. Um, and in a similar way, tulpa, yes, it means a manifestation or an emanation, but it means it in a very particular religious context. And, and in the idea, or in this sort of web of meaning, which is supplied by Buddhist philosophy, 
uh, and which it really can't be removed from. Right, yeah, they send like polysemous forms, as we call them in linguistics, just different different related meanings. But uh, <laughs> I was thinking too uh, that this is all pretty psychedelic, some of this, and I'm, I'm kind of making parallels to the idea of thought forms in the new age and also negative thought forms. I guess it comes from the, the law of attraction, the idea that you can think something into existence. So I'm wondering which came first, but I'm assuming it's the Tibetan theories. Right. So, so what we think happening, and you're exactly right, this notion of thought forms uh, is a Western idea. It comes from theosophy, which I'll talk about in just a second. And we also have stories in the West, like, uh, of course, Frankenstein's monster or the Jewish legend of the golem. And these are all creatures that, uh, that are created um, by human beings and then turn on their masters or are dangerous or, or sinister. And this is what Alexander David Neal is describing. Right. She's describing something that she should not have created and had to put down. That's a very different idea from this idea of the Dalai Lama is, is, you know, not going into nirvana because he wants to go out and and, and help you and give you wisdom. So the Theosophical Society uh, was formed in 1875 by uh, Helena Blavatsky and Henry Steele Olcott. This this is a sort of a lot of the ideas that we now associate with the New Age um, originated from theosophy. Uh, and theosophy, in turn, drew heavily from the spiritualist movement in the 19th century. Theosophy was really preoccupied with this idea of resolving religion and science, sort of bringing these two ideas together. And they also had an idea of there's the rational West and the mystical East, right? And this is something in religious studies that we constantly have to combat with our students because yeah. our students expect Buddhism to be very irrational, and very, very sort of peaceful, right? And and when we have, and then we have to talk about, you know, Burma, for instance, where you have Buddhists um, burning down Muslim villages and, and so forth. It's because this is so deeply embedded in our culture of the sort of mystical East. And, and Tibet has been especially affected by this mythology, right? Tibet is the land of hidden masters. And, you know, growing up when I was reading, I read Magic and Mystery in Tibetan high school, and I was reading Doctor Strange comic books and things like this, Right. So the theosophists want to reconcile mysticism and science, and part of that project is this idea of the thought form. So I went through the uh, journal of the Theosophical Society from the 19th century, which used to be called Lucifer. Uh, and, And they actually had a little disclaimer in their journal that said, this has nothing to do with the devil. This is Lucifer, the the light bearer. Yeah. Uh, But they they eventually changed it to the journal of of theosophy because I guess they were getting too many people clutching our pearls or something. <laughs> um, so in 1891, uh, there, an article appeared uh, by someone calling himself Safariel, uh, who was one of the founding members of Theosophy. And we now know that Safariel was uh, better known as Dr. Walter Gorn Old. He's sort of a, this uh, caricature of the kind of absent-minded professor. And he would go, he would have these sort of visions where he felt he was traveling on the astral plane and so forth. And he tells this story about how he's at dinner and he is sent to go down to the basement and to get a jug of uh, beer to have with, with dinner. And they give him the key to the basement, which is in a basket. And he goes down and he gets the beer out of a, a keg where it is in the basement. And then he realizes that he put the key to the basement in the jar that was supposed to hold the beer. And he put the beer in this basket, which is made out of wicker or something. He sets the basket on the table, and, of course, it leaks beer everywhere. And his companions were like, how did you manage to do that, right? Because 
there's absent-minded, then there's really absent-minded, right? You carried a basket of leaky beer all the way up from the basement and didn't notice what you were doing. And somebody, and these are all theosophists, and someone says, you must have imposed the thought form of this jug onto the basket, and that's how you didn't notice, right? Is after one jug of beer or two? <laughs> or, or some opium or... Yeah. Victorians have all kinds of uh, uh, distractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this is the, the first instance I can find of this term thought form. And here it's something uh-huh. that's created from his own thought, uh, but it's also beyond his control, right? It's deceiving him. It's, it's causing um, problems. Wow. Um, the following year, there's a longer discussion of thought forms by uh, Annie Besant. And Annie Besant ended up becoming mm-hmm. um, the leader of the theosophical movement and was this very sort of radical um, woman. She was um, interested in... Um, you know, birth control, in women's suff- women suffrage, and all these causes before they were really uh, fashionable. Uh, and she, she put a lot more um, um, energy into developing this notion of thought forms. And she believed that thoughts actually have a kind of physical reality to them. There's a sort of subtle matter to them and that they have consequences. So if you have benevolent thoughts, you are actually producing uh, a kind of matter around you which exerts a certain influence and draws other things to you. And likewise, if you're very angry and are having dark thoughts, uh, this can set other things in motion. And so she was using this to explain Asian concepts like karma and reincarnation and saying, see, this isn't just Eastern mysticism. This is scientific, right? There are physical reasons why uh, karma happens, why you're reborn as a result of your thoughts and and consequences and so forth. And I'll just say just – to defend the mystic East, that they actually did have very complicated and very rich explanations for how these things worked. Uh, the theosophists just didn't care to read them and couldn't read them because they were in Tibetan. Yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Uh, like a lot of new age people today. <laughs> well, and the, the flip side of the mystical East was they thought that they, as Londoners, were the only ones who could do anything in a sort of a rational and, and empirical <laughs> uh, way. So this idea of thought forms uh, is, is out there long before Alexander David Neal uh, went to uh, Tibet. 
Uh, and then in 1895, there's another shift where Annie Besant writes about what she calls ensouled thought forms. Uh, and so the theosophists believed in something called elementals. And these were sort of uh, naturally occurring forces in the, the they're part of the natural world and they're quasi-intelligent. So they're not intelligent the way you and I are. Uh, but they are sort of they, – they do have a sort of um, almost like an animal-like intelligence and they're invisible but they do have a kind of subtle um, physical existence to them. And she said when you create a really – when you admit this thought stuff, these elementals like to come in it and, and sort of live inside it and inhabit it. Uh, and so it can kind of give your thoughts uh, a, a soul and a sort of sentient existence. And again, if you have very positive thoughts, um, it will attract positive elementals and it can create something like a guardian angel. And if you have very dark negative thoughts, it will attract destructive elementals and create something very negative. And she wrote in 1895, and so demons and angels of our own creation throng around us uh, every day. And then finally, she says in this article that uh, – if a whole lot of people are thinking about the same thing, it can re- create sort of a composite entity um, of this sort of ensouled thought form uh, that can become very powerful. And if, if there's a whole lot of negativity, it can actually create uh, storms and earthquakes and accidents and, and things like this. So this is all in uh, 1895. And then in 1901, she actually writes a book called Thought Forms um, with, with Charles Ledbetter, who's another uh, theosophist. And uh, Alexander David Neal studied theosophy before she went to Tibet. So the best we can tell is these ideas she was really getting from London uh, and from the West became confused with her understanding of uh, figures like the Dalai Lama from Tibetan Buddhism. And the result was that we have a thoroughly Western concept um, that gets attributed to Tibet. It gets attributed mm-hmm. to the mystic East. And, and now the ending of uh, Ghostbusters 2 makes sense suddenly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but seriously, because, you know, Dan Aykroyd, his family is heavy into spiritualism, and this is probably uh, a ready concept for him. Well, the, the, pink, the pink slime in Ghostbusters 2 was a thought form, I and mean, that was very much what Annie Besant <laughs> Yeah, had. yeah, that's why I, I'm, I'm complete. I know it's funny, but it's also completely serious. So. <laughs> yeah. And another um, thing I forgot to mention about the verb pula. Um, is that it's uh, a voluntary verb. And Tibetan makes the distinction between involuntary and voluntary verbs so that to say, I broke the cup and the cup broke, you're using two different verbs for that that breaking um, verb. And trulwa is a voluntary verb. You cognitively, like you choose to trulwa. So it's very clear that David Neal got a lot of this idea from Annie Besant with this sort of, sort of involuntary trulwa, this unconscious... I want to say trolling of the masses, but that's not quite what I mean. So, so there are lots of ideas in Tibetan Buddhism that if you are a Buddha and, and you really have an insight into the nature of, of reality, uh, that you can, you can create illusions, you can create emanations and, and things like this. But the idea that you can create something that turns on you and becomes dangerous uh, appears to be a thoroughly Western idea. We can't yeah. find anything like that in Tibetan tradition. What's the Tibetan word for um, – um uh, plagiarism of someone else's religion. <laughs> Zutru. Zutru uh, is, is, uh, means an illusion. So there are um, magicians in Tibet that can do sort of magic tricks and, and, and things like this. And when we were talking with a Tibetan scholar uh, this afternoon, I said, so if you can 
make something for somethingawful.com where it looks like a tall, skinny monster standing next to a little girl, was that, is that a form of zutrul? Yeah. And, and he said, well, that, you know, that, yeah. So in, in that sense, Slender Man is a type yeah. of combination or a type <laughs> of illusion. Yeah. In a roundabout way. I thought I'd take things back a little bit to, uh, to talk a bit more about uh, Slender Man. We've got a, a few more questions about that, uh, if we could return to that. So uh, in the article that you wrote, you talked about some of the theories which are used to explain the motivation for the attack. Uh, you talked about things like a diagnosis of mental illness uh, or the girl's close friendship together or the atrocity story as well. Uh, so how do these games cross the line from fiction to someone's reality? Well, initially after this happened, you know, there was a, a storm on the internet of different interpretations. And there were two main theories, both of which I found um, dissatisfying and potentially dangerous. So the first one was, it's the internet's fault, right? We need to censor the internet. Uh, why were these girls allowed to look on creepypasta and, and so forth? And the high school said, well, we have um, filters on our internet service, but creepypasta doesn't trigger those filters because it's just scary stories, right? There's nothing uh, uh, graphic and so forth. And I, I think that censorship is rarely uh, uh, the answer. And the other response was that these girls are obviously mentally ill. Uh, and they might be. Obviously, they're being um, uh, evaluated by a psychiatrist and their, their attorneys have tried to uh, have them ruled as mentally ill. But it's kind of intellectually lazy to say that they're mentally ill when all that we know about them is that they um, committed this act of violence, right? So this is a tautology. I know you guys talk a lot about logical fallacies uh, on the show. Uh, but the argument is, well, they must be mentally ill because they uh, – they did something violent and they did something violent because they're mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hear this argument a lot, particularly in the wake of like mass shootings or something, right? Mm-hmm. That, well, they had a mass shooting, so it means they were mentally ill, right? Which means this isn't a gun issue. It's a mental illness uh, uh, Like issue. Elliot Rogers. That's, that's right. And we know they were mentally ill because they had a mass shooting. So no one who ever does a mass shooting will not be mentally ill, right? It will never be uh, anything other than a mental illness uh, issue. And, and so I think there's something else going on here. And so uh, in my research, I've looked a lot at, uh, at play. Um, and I've looked at a number of, of similar cases. So in the vampire book, there's a famous uh, case with a boy named Rod Farrell, uh, who when he was 16... Um, had sort of a coterie of uh, teenagers who claimed to be vampires. And he said at one point he was a 400-year-old vampire. Uh, And then in 1996, he actually killed uh, a couple in Florida. Uh, And if you read the description of what happened, it doesn't look like he had this elaborate plan or he was going to kill them or drink their blood. Uh, He broke into their home. These are the parents of sort of his ex-girlfriend who he kind of felt that he was um, uh, taking her away from her abusive family or something. The friend that went in there apparently was sort of frozen and thought we're not seriously going to, to, to hurt people. Um, so what I think happens in these cases is there is sort of a, a, um, a, a game that's never actually declared as being a game. No one is really sure where that game is going to end until irrevocable consequences result. Uh, and if you look at how this, uh, this attack actually happens, uh, when they brought this uh, the victim who was invited over for a sleepover out into the the woods, um, the girls kind of split agency, right? So they had, you know, at first they said, "Oh, we're going to stab her in her sleep," and then they didn't, and then they said, "We're going to take her out to the bathroom of this public park, and the blood will go down the drain." And they take her in the bathroom, and they they don't do anything. 
And then they play hide and seek. And finally, one of them tackles her and pins her down in the woods and, and uh, pulls out her knife and says, I won't, I won't do anything until you tell me to, until you give me the order. Uh, so one girl is giving the order but not stabbing. The other one is stabbing but on somebody else's order. So they're kind of – no one's ever kind of taking responsibility uh, for the action. So I think that the scary part about this is that this sort of snuck up on them in a way. This started out as, as kind of a game – uh, and then I think it just sort of happened in kind of the, the heat of the moment. And it was sort of a perfect storm of uh, uh, a number of different factors. And I think in, in a lot of ways, that is what's disturbing to people, right, is that it, it could potentially happen um, uh, at, at any time, right, out of these this sort of constellation of factors. And there isn't something very simple we can all stick it on, like mental illness or shut down this website. It's interesting because – you have uh, an audience there by having that second person as a as a, a, a an accomplice, mm-hmm. and it's not just about taking the action, but it's also about how is the person that you're with going to perceive the actions that you take. Uh, That's right. This this theory of of corrupted play. Um, you know, there was a sociologist in Japan named Akuya Sato, and he was studying the Bozuzoku, who are these uh, biker gangs in Japan. And they would get in some pretty serious trouble. Uh, you know, they would be drag racing, but they would also be doing, you know, they, they would commit gang rape sometimes. They would make Molotov cocktails. And these were, for the most part, um, affluent um, kids from middle class families. And so in studying them, and he actually would, would associate with these gang members, um, this was sort of this fantasy, right? They would watch uh, Western movies like, you know, Mad Max Right. And, and want to sort of perf- do, be this persona of the biker. But then in the heat of the moment, some of them would have these irrevocable consequences. Right. So once you it's one thing to dress as a biker and drive your bike too fast. But once you've actually done something like committed a rape or shot someone, well, then it's no longer a game you're playing. Right. Now you really are this dangerous biker and you can't go back. And often those irrevocable consequences uh, come about through um, obviously a desire to perform for your peers, uh, but also this desire to sort of reach the limits. Uh, Sato talked about a lot of these bikers wanted to kind of see how far they could go with something like this. And I imagine something similar happened uh, leading up to the Slenderman stabbing. Apparently these girls first hit upon this idea uh, sometime in January. So you can imagine by the end of March when this actually happened, um, there had been this um, – um, this move towards seeing just how far this could go before we finally admit, okay, it was just a fantasy. Yeah, it just really negates the idea of mental illness to all that malice of forethought. The other thing that was disturbing yeah. about this was um, we, we mentioned the 2006 episode of Supernatural Hell House where they introduced the, the Tulpa. And then there was another episode uh, that uh, aired on March 4th of this year, um, months before the actual stabbing. And the episode was called Hashtag Thin Man. Obvious parody of Slenderman, where Slenderman appears to be going around killing people, and the investigators say, "Well, it's probably another tulpa, yeah. like we dealt with last time." And it turns out that Slenderman is not a tulpa; that it's actually ordinary people uh, who are committing these murders because they want people to believe that this creature from the internet, this internet meme, has a physical existence. Right? And this was the same motive uh, quoted by these poor twelve-year-old girls. Um, so it was very eerie. Um, how prescient that episode of Supernatural was. Didn't they actually have a uh, an episode where it kind of culminated in Stull, Kansas? Like there's supposed to be a... Yeah. Was that... The, it's supposed to be a gateway to hell? 
Yes, the the end of season five, the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so I, I've been to Stull, Kansas, and uh, that's a that's a real urban legend, I guess, so to speak. Oh, really? Yeah, the, 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 there's a gate to hell there, and it's uh, it's it's not true. And it's led to all kinds of terrible damage to their graveyard where people have broken gravestones and come out looking for Satan to appear at Halloween night. And I guess the point is I'm almost I'm almost convinced Supernatural is not a good source for this information. <laughs> if enough people believe that there's a Hellgate in Kansas, won't that create one from the- – It's going to create a lot of disappointment and trouble for their one sheriff. <laughs> or it might be hell in a different way. Yeah, it could be. It could be. So yeah. <laughs> so, so what – you talk about um, ostension. Can you talk about that in this context within folklore? Yeah, so this is a this is a term taken from the study of of folklore, and folklore is a slightly different discipline from religious studies. Um, but I'm very influenced by folklorists uh, such as Bill Ellis. You may know who Bill Ellis is. He wrote on um, Satanic Panic, um, and and folklore is sort of dying out. You know, a lot of departments uh, in folklore are, are kind of closing their doors. Um, but the folklorists have a lot of good theory that I think uh, people in religious studies uh, uh, could use. So this notion of ostension, first of all, he talks about um, something called a legend complex, right, about how um, legends sort of congeal together and make sort of almost like a carpet of, uh, of ideas. So with something like creepy pasta, um, there's different ideas about what exactly Slender Man is and then is Slender Man good or bad and so forth. But it all, it all sort of um, uh, blends together. And then there's a move to uh, demonstrate that that legend complex is, is real. Um, and this can happen in a number of ways, um, such as uh, – which, which are called ostension. So ostension could be something like, I know Slender Man is real because I saw him in my you know, closet last night as I was going to sleep or something like this. Uh, and this would also include things like faked photographs and so forth. Uh, but in some cases, ostension can include actually doing the thing described in the, the legend complex. So a famous example of this uh, concerns the legend that uh, uh, people poison Halloween candy, right? That you can't let your kids go trick-or-treating because there are some people out there that put razor blades in apples or, or something like this. Uh, and, and I think it was 1974, uh, there was a guy who took out a life insurance policy on his son and on Halloween, personally put strychnine into a pixie stick and, and poisoned his son. And his hope was to appeal to this legend complex, right? Some evildoer, for reasons we'll never know, uh, poisoned my son. So you have a case like that where the legend actually comes to life, right, by people uh, pointing to it and actually acting it out. So it starts as a claim, and then the claims become an actual script for, for performance. So you can see that uh, as well here with the, with the stabbing, right? Part of the legend about Slenderman is Slenderman doesn't kill people. Slenderman persuades other people to become killers. And one of the claims of these girls was, well, we wanted to do this to show that Slender was real. So extension is kind of related to legend tripping then? Yeah, legend tripping, yeah, would, would be a, a subcategory of extension. Legend tripping, of course, is where a group of people, usually teenagers, um, go to a site where, um, uh, where something dark happened or that's supposedly um, um, haunted or where there's supposedly a portal to hell or something like this. <laughs> and they kind of go and see what they can see. Uh, but there's been um, some research on, on legend tripping. I'm thinking there's a book by Michael Kinsella called Legend Tripping Online. And he actually went with a group of legend trippers to an abandoned mental institution 
Uh, and he said, I actually saw things, right? I saw uh, this sort of something moving in the, in the darkness. And uh, he's trained as an anthropologist and someone who studies ritual. And he says, I think that the legend trip itself is a kind of ritual that prepares you mentally to see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. Right. right. Mm-hmm. If, if he had gone to this mental institution in the daytime with, you know, his grandmother or something, he probably would have just seen a mental institution. But because he goes with certain people at a certain time and all these sorts of prescribed methods, uh, it has an effect, which he experienced even going just as a, as a researcher. So legend tripping is another way that these legends kind of come to life and, and gain more power. Especially things that you're going to experience through your mind. So it's already there's already the whole red pill, blue pill problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now you're going to be doing these things that are going to prime you for these kind of experiences. Um, yeah. It, it, it does make me wonder, though. So this concept of altering reality through combined communal belief, um, is that common to many religions? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of where not, not just bringing things to life, but just making things true by common belief versus the actual, is there a net difference if no one actually verifies? In other words, if everybody, like say transubstantiation, if everyone believes that if they take communion, that the, the wafer turns into the body of Christ in their mouth, then without an investigation, it's effectively true, right? But uh, uh, besides that, though, I'm not really familiar with a lot of religions that do this sort of thing. Maybe you guys are. Yeah, I mean, we can't speak definitively on all religious traditions that have ever existed. Um, but, but at least to me, this seems like a, <laughs> to me, this seems like a very modern idea, right? I, yeah. I can't find anything like this before the 19th century. And, and right. that's when, when you begin to get this idea yeah. of, well, there's religion and science and they're at odds with each other and we have to figure out some sort of middle path. And I think that's where you get these ideas like, well, if we all believe in something, it could actually change the nature of reality. Natasha? I think the closest, I'm trying to, I'm struggling to try to think of, the closest I can come up with is that in Buddhism, there is the idea of collective karma. And that, but that is more that everyone is together and perceives a certain reality because of their karma and their karma in some way constructs the reality and constructs the, the social and cultural forces that bring them together for that particular moment. Um, but it's not like they could all just change their beliefs and then their karma would change and their reality would change. It's a it's sort of just a sort of causal force. I almost feel like to, to arrive at an idea like this, you would have to have an awareness that other cultures believe different things. And then you would also have a desire to say, like, well, if it isn't all just made up, if there's something real here, then how could that, how could that be, right? Um, I think this is partly why John Keel was interested in tulpas, right? Because he was interviewing these people and he saw the evidence there that the things they were describing were derivative of television and other sources and culture, but he wanted some kind of interpretive lens so there could still be something there, right? So he said, well, maybe it's a tulpa, right? Maybe there's still something supernatural going on here, even if it appears to just be um, you kind of acting out your culture. So I, I'm very interested in idea transfer. So the idea, you know, the, the, the sort of the tool of using memetics uh, as a way to kind of uh, explain how information transfer happens, or at least to... Uh, model it is interesting to me. But what I've noticed is that uh, from reading a lot of uh, paranormal literature and listening to a lot of paranormal uh, media, that the idea of being able to change reality just by, uh, you know, joint belief is, uh, is really, really, uh, what's, 
I don't want to say rampant, but it's it's out there in a big way, and not just things like the secret. But I there's a really popular idea right now, or it's growing in popularity that 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 there's spinoff timelines, and that when you have a mistaken belief about what something I would say was you have a mistaken memory or a bad memory, people are believing that that they actually uh, are recalling a different timeline than everyone else. And I, 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 I find it difficult <laughs> to understand um, how this happens. But uh, the movie about that? Was that? I feel like there must have been a sci-fi movie about that. Well, it's, it's um, like the, the common one that I keep hearing is about particular people who uh, die. Like uh, the, he's supposed to be – well, he's still alive at the time of this recording as far as I know. But there's people who remember him dying and they don't think – Oh, I'm mistaken. They think that's because he died, but in my reality, <laughs> I, 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 it it's so alien to me. I find it almost offensive uh, because if you can't rely on uh, testable methodology to test things, um, then what kind of a reality do you have? I, I don't know. It's it's very loose. It's loosey goosey out there with some people. So. Right. Well, I, I still see the the kind of legacy of theosophy in a claim like that, right? Because it's taking an idea that's really sort of, you know, in a way kind of magical thinking, right? A sort of supernatural idea. And then it's invoking this idea of, you know, alternate, you know, parallel realities or, or something like this uh, to kind of give it the kind of an air of, of scientific validity, right? Um, and that's, that's sort of the kind of moves that the theosophists were making and saying, well, you know, Maybe karma works because thoughts have matter, right? It's kind of the 21st century version of, of, of that sort of move, right? The other thing Americans forget is the, the influence of new thought, right? New yeah. thought goes back to the 19th century. It's a very old idea um, mm-hmm. going back to movements like Christian science that uh, if, you're, you know, if you get sick or if bad things happen to you or something like this, this is because you were too negative and that by mm-hmm. positive thinking you can um, – you know, you can basically transform your life uh, for, for the better. That's a very old idea. And, you know, people have said America is a very optimistic uh, culture, right? We don't have poor people in America. We have embarrassed millionaires, temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Uh, and so this idea that, that, um, that you can transform your life just by thinking is, is really kind of deep in the way that we think about things. I wonder if it's useful in any way. <laughs> Beyond, you know, keeping a positive attitude is one thing, but believing, you know, if you study cults and religions, then you've probably at least looked at the transformative nature of things such as, um, what do they call it? Prosperity, prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the prosperity gospel, right? So, so, again, right, why is this so appealing, right? This, this keeps coming up over and over again, whether it's New Thought or the prosperity gospel or, or the secret, right? Um, and I've also written on uh, Est, which were these seminars in the 70s. Uh, and so Werner Earhart, the founder of Est, um, studied New Thought, and he also studied Buddhism. And there are ideas in Buddhism that suffering can be mitigated, right, by changing the way that you think about things, by sort of altering mm-hmm. your attitude about what's causing you to, to suffer. Uh, and he would have these big seminars where he would do kind of how he imagined Zen training. He imagined you know, again, we have all these stories in the West about Zen monasteries where they hit you with a stick or something or they beat you up and you become enlightened. And he would have these uh, seminars in hotel rooms where he would kind of abuse people for a few hours uh, to try and sort of help them what he called get it, right, to become uh, enlightened. And, and in one of these seminars, there was a Holocaust survivor who actually asked him, right, you know, did, did what happened to me and my family happen because we had a bad attitude? 
right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> did, the hol- did everyone who died in the Holocaust just not think about things in, in the right way or something? And mm-hmm. you couldn't really reconcile that with the kind of um, optimism and, and power of positive thinking that, that he was selling. Um, so there are definitely limits to the kind yeah. of uh, uh, the kind of uh, change your attitude and you can change the world uh, approach to reality. And again, we see here this this Buddhist idea being taken and not entirely being not entirely turned on its head, but being entirely removed from the cultural context in which it was used um, and overly simplified. I mean, I don't think any Buddhist philosopher would say that the Holocaust happened because people had a bad attitude. Um, And it's a much more rich and uh, deep tradition about um, ideas of what is suffering and how suffering arises um, and the different kinds of suffering, not just, if you have good thoughts, good things will happen. And so in that sense, things like the tulpa uh, and, and strange ideas about reality and so forth are kind of the product of globalization, right? Is there's yeah. sort of increased travel and dialogue between East and West. Ideas are exchanged, uh, but those ideas rarely arrive to a new culture intact. They get heavily distorted. Uh, and so far, uh, it's the West doing most of the distorting because they have the resources to, to go over there and, and bring back what, uh, what appeals to them and leave behind what doesn't. Yeah, like a kind of cultural diffusion or something. Exactly. I mean, today when we sat down with this Tibetan scholar and tried to explain what Americans think a tulpa is, we had to go through it several times because it was really (laughs) alien to his way of thinking. Wow. (laughs) His mind was too ordered for the stupid to stick. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, Oh, oh you, you mentioned EST just on a complete side note there. Is, didn't that lead to NLP? Yeah. Um, Warner Earhart was, was heavily attacked um, both, um, you know, for, for sort of financial things that he did. Um, and also anyone who's sort of a charismatic leader of a movement like this will, will be, will tend to get some pretty heavy uh, attacks in the, in the media. Uh, and so he ended up basically retiring and uh, handing most of the um, the copyright to um, to the EST program on to other people. And there it sort of morphed into a bunch of different things. One was called the Forum. Uh, one was called the Landmark Institute. Uh, and so things derived from this training uh, are still used uh, in, in a lot of work environments. Actually, in Atlanta, at the DeKalb uh, County Farmer's Market, um, there was actually a case over this where they were trying to require employees to go through this training so that they could see reality in a new way and be better uh, employees. And uh, they passed some uh, labor guidelines that said you can't make your employees undergo new age training. <laughs> well, they have really great vegetables there. I didn't realize they also had great nuts. Okay. <laughs> That's horrible. Okay. <laughs> People can sell you their vegetables even with their sort of limited understanding of, of reality. That's right. No, they really do have good vegetables there. It's a great place to go shopping. <laughs> but the, yeah, so and just for our listeners, I, I should probably stick this in here, but there was a, EST stood for Earhard Seminars Training, and NLP is what? Neuro Linguistic Programming? Yeah, yeah and NLP. Yeah. yeah, NLP just draws from so many different theories and belief systems. All right, so um, I guess we should wind up. Is there anything else about Tulpas or Slenderman uh, that we didn't ask you about that you'd like to talk about? 
I, I don't think so. We, uh, we, we have this uh, research note. It's not a full article, but sort of um, outlying the sort of linguistic and historical findings that's coming out in uh, Nova Religio, which is an academic journal for the study of, uh, of new religious movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll, uh, you know, we're curious to see what happens to Slenderman and, and Tulpas uh, in, in the future. Is that something we could link to in the show notes or when it comes out or – uh, yeah, when it comes out, I'll, I'll send you an email and you can link to it in the show notes. Okay, so future link for the show notes there. That's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, guys, uh, we like to ask all of our guests who come on the show, because this is Monster Talk, so what are your favorite monsters, respectively? My favorite monster is probably the Naga, and it's an Asian sort of underwater creature um, that is associated with prosperity and wealth um, and has a really important role in the myth that I study. And so I feel it's a lot of affinity for them. Well, and we should mention, Natasha, (laughs) we're also working on a a, a Tibetan monastery uh, in in Scotland where the abbot of this monastery believes that Nessie is a Naga uh, and has begun leaving traditional offerings uh, to Nessie, like you would in a Tibetan lake or something, for the local Naga, and she feels that this will um, help tie her community to the land and cultivate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, prosperity. So that's an interesting fusion of Western cryptozoology yeah. and Buddhism. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to picture a Scottish person saying Naga and me figuring out what they were talking about. So. <laughs> Naga. <laughs> uh, and, and for myself, it would probably be Mothman. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been to the Mothman Festival uh, several times now. Uh, I made poor Natasha go uh, <laughs> time. Uh, and, and I think it's probably because I encountered the Mothman story when I was very young, you know, when I was reading some, some book for kids about monsters in America or, or something. Uh, and this whole story of, you know, Linda Scarberry being uh, chased in her car and everything was, was very compelling. Uh, and then my, my grandmother grew up in uh, Wood River, Illinois, which is also um, near the uh, Piasaw Bird, which I don't know if you've talked about the Piasaw Bird on the show, um, but this is an image painted on a cliff face by Native Americans of a massive winged creature. Uh, and so some of the hardcore Mothman enthusiasts have said, well, there actually was some sort of ancient flying creature and the the Native Americans knew about it, and it, it stopped in, in, in Point Pleasant. So I think I was predisposed by my childhood to be fascinated with Mothman. I, <laughs> I never had a chance, really. Did, did you watch the film? I did. I liked the film. I thought the film was sort of well done and, uh, and sort of eerie. And, uh, and I've actually written an article on, uh, on Mothman um, and, and sort of looking at what's happened to the town of Point Pleasant from a religious studies uh, perspective. And I can send you a link for that for the show notes as, as well. When people build a giant bronze statue of something in the center of their town, um, that's the sort of thing that attracts religious studies scholars. <laughs> <laughs> this is no idle speculation. This is <laughs> but, yeah, they, the uh, statue, I've, I've, got a, I've got a couple of shirts from the Mothman Festival, thanks to some listeners. Yeah, they're, they're, it's it's really. I really want to go to that festival and check it out. Well, uh, thank you guys for coming onto the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You guys are very knowledgeable. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, we've been discussing Slenderman and Tulpas with Professor Joe Laycock and doctoral student Natasha Michaels. 
Check out our show notes at monstertalk.org or skeptic.com for lots of additional information and articles related to this episode. Also, a link to Joe's book on vampires. Hopefully this episode's made a good case that tulpas are not an ancient Eastern belief in the ability of the mind to bring imaginary concepts into reality. When Joe's article is published, we'll add a link to that in the show notes as well. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The ideas expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you want to do an experiment, why don't half of the listeners believe really firmly that you've bought a subscription to Skeptic Magazine and the other half actually purchased a subscription? It's not really a very scientific experiment, but I suspect it would make the people at Skeptic Magazine's staff happy. And who doesn't like a happy staff? Anyway, speaking of the Atlanta Star Party, let me remind you that the 6th annual Atlanta Star Party is going to be at Emory University's Math and Physics Building on August 28, 2014. Monster Truck listeners can get a discount on tickets to that fundraiser by going to atlantastarparty.com and using the code MONSTERTALK2014 to save $5 off the ticket price. You'll get a great lecture, great food, and meet lots of interesting folks. I hope to see you there. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk, please tell a friend. Every time we get a download, Slenderman gets a new tentacle. Okay, that may not be quite right. Regardless, please share and enjoy if you want folks to sass that you're a hoopy fruit who really knows where your towel is. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. <laughs> Did I ever tell you I knew a guy who was um, side bottom, but he said it was pronounced city bottom? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I used to tell people that my name was uh, pronounced Samitahay, like the Cherokee. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.